Turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, chapter 62. So Psalm 62 this morning. Before we get started, I'll have a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you now this morning with a a trust in you that has been placed upon on the goodness of your word. We we see the stories and the and the histories and, and, and all the things that kind of Give us evidence of, of who you are. And, and Lord, this is what this is where our, our, our hope finds its place. Lord, as we come to your word, as we come to what we consider to be your truth here on this earth, we we just ask that your spirit would be manifest and made known to us. We might hear his call and his direction. We might hear what the Spirit would teach us. We wouldn't be stubborn and hard-hearted, but we would be open to hearing what uh, you would have us learn. Lord, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for what you have given us with his sacrifice on the cross. We ask now that through our, through his shed blood, we might come to know you more through what you would teach us today. Lord, it's in your precious and holy son, Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen. Again, turn to Psalm chapter 62. Psalm 62. There's a called superscription previous to to the actual psalm itself that gives us a clue to to who it's written by or or what its purpose is as to the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David, David being the the author of this psalm, Jeduthun probably being more of a, a tune or something along those lines. Verse 1. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. 
He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Put out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. That you, that, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Spirit, again, we ask that you would show us the truth of who God is in the pages of Scripture. Amen. So the first thing that we need to do is we need to address the context. Psalms are, are, are different in that as you go through the book of Psalms, they're, they're, they're all over the spectrum or all over the place in, in the history of, of the people of Israel. So you might have uh, one psalm from early Israelite history and you might have the next psalm being from late Israelite history. Maybe one written by Moses and then immediately following one written by David and so on and so on. And so every new psalm kind of poses a new, a new question for us. What, what's the context for this? And some of them we, we know. Some of them, we have this little subscription at the beginning, this little detail at the beginning that kind of clues us in when did this happen, why did this happen, who wrote it, and things like that. And, and others, we don't have as much detail. And This one just tells us it's the Psalm of David. And by context, we learn uh, perhaps it's from his time uh, fleeing from King Saul. I think the traditional understanding of this is that uh, David pens this once he becomes king, but it was a psalm that is kind of buried in this reality of being chased by uh, his king, King Saul. King Saul being the first king of Israel, who uh, is given to Israel as a king, basically uh, to give in to, to the, the pettiness and the foolishness of the people of Israel. The people of Israel, uh, during the time of the judges, just do whatever they want, and disaster ensues. And so they eventually start saying, we want a king, we want a king. And not only do they say, we want a king, we want a king like the kings that are around us. We want a king like the Moabites have and the Philistines have. We want a king like all these kings. And what that means is that they want a tall, handsome, mighty warrior king. They don't, they don't care about if he follows after God. They don't, all they care about is what does he look like. We want, to be, we want to look like all these other nations around us. and He'll lead us. That'll be That'll be good. Look at the success all these other nations have. And so God, he, he says to Samuel, who is the person who is going to anoint the last judge of the people of Israel, he's going to anoint the, the king, the first king. And, and God comes to 
Samuel and he says, hey, hey, Samuel, here's what I want you to do. Give them exactly what they want. Which, just so everybody knows, when God says that to you, that's not a good thing. Prepare for some learning. God says, give them exactly what they want. Give them a tall, handsome, mighty man who, who seems to have it all figured out. And they get Saul. And for a little while, Saul does, does a decent job. He, he kind of he has this false sense of humility. He, he doesn't know if he should be king. Actually, when he's first uh, said, when they first say, hey, let's anoint him, he hides in the, in the luggage and all sorts of stuff. Some strange stories at the beginning of Saul's career. And eventually, he kind of gets the hang of being the king. And uh, being the king goes to his head. And exactly the warnings that God gives to the people of Israel in the Deuteronomy, everything happens with Saul. He's going he's gonna to send your men into battle. They're going to be killed. He's not going to really care about you. and He's going to kind of be arrogant. And this is Saul. Eventually God says, see, I told you. And you will no longer be king, Saul. You're, you're, you're done. Your family line is done. There's not going to be a monarchy through you. It's, it's, you're you didn't follow after me. You're not who I would choose to be king over the people of Israel. And so therefore he kind of removes his hand of, of, of protection off of Saul and he places it upon David. David is literally the complete opposite of Saul. He's a small boy when he's first anointed. He's so insignificant in his own family that, that when, when the last judge of Israel, when Samuel comes to the house to anoint one of the sons of Jesse, who is David's father. David doesn't even get invited in. He's left out in the fields to tend to the sheep. Like, wouldn't that be, even if one of David's older brothers would have been anointed king, wouldn't you want your whole family there to witness the older brother becoming king? David is so insignificant. He's small. He's, he's ruddy. He's kind, of a, he's kind of a girly boy. He plays out in the, in the fields with his sheep. He's strumming a harp. He's not what you imagine. He's not what every other king looks like. But he has one thing going for him. His heart is after God. This is the defining characteristic of King David. His heart is after God. He desires God. He desires God's presence. He desires God's hand of protection. He desires God with everything that he is. Now, we'll, we'll take a step back and realize David is still a blockhead. Just like all of us. He gets put into a position of power. Eventually power goes to his head. Instead of going out to war, he stays home. He sees Bathsheba naked on the roof taking a bath. Which, by the way, if you see a woman naked on the roof taking a bath, stop watching. He stares. He lusts. Eventually he calls her to his, to his bedchamber. He lies with her. He gets her pregnant. To cover it up, he brings Uriah, her husband, home. Uh, he doesn't. He's too, he's too noble to to be with his wife while all the others are out at war. Uh, hint, hint, David, you're making a huge mistake. You've made a huge mistake. So instead, he has Uriah killed. He sends him to the front. He takes him away. David is a bonehead. But David's desire is God. And David's desire for God, I think is solidified in the many years, I think it's like 14 to 20 years, in between his anointing and him becoming king. 
And many of those years, over a decade, over ten years, Saul pursues him to try to kill him. And so, see, Saul finds out, oh, you're going to replace me. I, I want my son Jonathan to be king, so I'm going to go against God's wishes, even though God anointed you. I'm going to try to kill you. And attempt after attempt after attempt, and plot after plot after plot, and, and again and again, Saul tries to kill David. And this is most likely when David pens this. When he's being pursued by his king. And David realizes that this is still the anointed one of God, and he has multiple chances to take Saul's life and kind of free himself from the from the pain, from the turmoil that's being caused by Saul, but he won't. He's too he cares too much about God in his plan. His heart is is affixed to God. So this is this is the scenario, at least, that I paint in my own mind. I see David. He's in a cave somewhere. He's got some guys with him, right? He's not alone. He's got his mighty men, his mighty men of valor who are there protecting him, kind of the outcasts of the community. They kind of see David as their, as their leader. They recognize what God is about to do. I imagine that they've, they've, just, been, they've just finally gotten free from, from being pursued by this army of saws, and they've found this secluded cave somewhere, and they're kind of sitting in the back of the cave, and David... He starts to sing this, right? He's got, his, he's got his little harp, and he starts playing along, and he starts to sing this. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Now this is a man who who has in in every respect no security. Right? Everything around David is chaos. Even in the midst of the cave where maybe he finds some sense of shelter and again this is just my guess, right? He, he finds some sense of shelter, some sense of 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 uh, non-chaotic reality, but the, but the reality is still right there. At any moment, Saul's army could find us. At any moment, Saul's army could sneak up on us and take my life. Really, at any moment, David's life could be over. I think there are times in our life when we realize this kind of weight I think most of us live relatively comfortable lives, right? We can all we can all admit that you know, 21st century rural America, most of us have comfortable lives. But there's still times in our life when everything seems to be chaotic. Whether work is struggling. The people who we thought were friends became enemies. We might not be threatened with death, but I think at the same moment where we find some sense of, of comfort or some sense of, of calm, there's always this looming reality that chaos is right around the corner. And David says, 
for you alone, God, my soul waits in silence. For you alone. Now that alone is going to be something that repeats itself. In Hebrew, it's ak. You learn a couple Hebrew words today. Ak. It's only or alone. It's a singular. It's a it's just this. For you alone, God, he says, my soul waits. For your, you are my salvation. You are it. You are the only thing that keeps me alive, that keeps me going, that keeps me safe. In verse 2, he says, he alone, there it is again, Ak, is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Again, this is the man who at any moment chaos could reign. I will not be shaken. Because I have this realization that God is it. Now, a fortress, we don't, we don't live in medieval Europe, right? We live in, we live in a world, we live in a country that never had castles. Not, not really real castles. There's castles around them. We never really had to think about life in terms of where is the final sense of safety. Anybody ever see The Lord of the Rings? I know it's a really old reference, but it is, it is one of the greatest pictures of what a fortress is. Okay, The Battle of Helm's Deep. For those of you who know what I'm talking about, good. Those of you who don't, I'm sorry. You should watch Lord of the Rings. It's a great film. Anyway, the Battle of Helm's Deep, you've got this, this big, huge castle, palace thingy for war. Everybody comes into this place. They go behind these, this first set of walls, big, huge, impenetrable walls. They actually say in the movie, actually in the book, it describes it much better. They say this, these walls, they cannot be breached. It's impossible. Nothing can breach these walls. Nothing ever has. Nothing ever has even come close. They cannot be breached. We are safe and secure, and we still have a vantage point to continue to fight the war. By the way, this is not the fortress. This is just an outer wall. There's defense, right? They're up on the, they're up on the, the wall. They're shooting arrows. They're, they're hacking people as they bring their, their ladders up. And eventually, right, the, the orc goes in. He blows a hole in the wall and all these. And what do they do? They go, retreat! And they go back a level. And they do the same thing. You've got the outer walls, you've got these inner walls, and they're still fighting. They're shooting from the, from the, the, the walls, and they're, they're, def- they're defending themselves, and eventually they do it one more time. Retreat! And they go into the fortress. Now, the fortress has no military defense. It is simply the final place where you cannot be attacked. You go into the rock, You go into the wall, you go back in, you shut the doors, and you hope they can't get through these walls. That's the fortress. You alone are my rock, my salvation, my last resort of security. I'm not even defending myself anymore. I have lost all of my defense. I have nothing left to give. It's you and you alone, God, who is protecting me. Now, the real question is for us today, have we ever been in situations where it seems like this is it? 
Has chaos ever reigned so so magnificently in our lives where we go, I have I have just literally nothing left. And I think this is what solidifies David's heart after God. For 10, 15 years, this is all David had. God. Verse 3. How long will all of you attack a man? That's David. How long will you attack him? To batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. When Missy and I first bought our, our house, our property, we, there was a fence. It's an old fence, probably 30, 40 years old. And it was ugly. It's barbed wire, tipping over. At one point I rented a, a tractor thing or whatever, and I hooked a chain up to it, and I pulled the fence out. It was beaten and bruised and broken. I didn't fix it. I didn't try to lift it up. I tore it down. This is the picture that David is painting. David is he's teetering. He's, he's falling over. He's been attacked and attacked and attacked. He's got nothing left. And instead of reaching out a hand to help him up, man just continually crushes him. Pulls him down like a fence. Again, I ask, have we ever been in this situation? Have you ever hit your knees in prayer and asked God, when is this going to end? This is a, a desperate moment. The only plan, verse 4, to trust Him, to thrust Him, excuse me, down from His high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They're enjoying this. They bless with their mouths and inwardly they curse. You're such a great guy. Punt. Right? So what's David do? I give up. I'm done. God can't help me. I can't help me. My mighty men can't help me. I'm done. Throw up my hands. I, I, I give up. Go ahead and kill me, Saul. Somebody shake your head no. That's not what he says. What does he say? For, for God alone. And by the way, it's alone first. Alone, God. My soul. Oh, my soul. Wait in silence. Did you notice the tense change? Earlier on in the, in the, in the first verse, it says, it says, my soul waits. Meaning it's, it's, it's happened, it's already been, it's something that, that, has, that has taken place, maybe continues to take place, but it's something that has, has been fixed in life. Now he goes, look at the chaos, how long, Lord, how long am I going to endure this? When are they going to stop? Oh, Lord my God, I will wait. I will Wait. This is, a, this is not no, no longer a description of what has taken place. This is a call to action on David's part to himself. Wait in silence. For my, my hope, for my hope is from him. He is my rock and my salvation and my fortress. Notice the repetition here from verse 2. I shall not be 
shaken. First, it was greatly shaken. I'm not, these big things, they're not going to get me. Now he's like, nope. My feet are firmly fixed on the ground. My hope is firmly set on the rock that is my God. On God rests my salvation, my glory, my mighty rock and refuge is God. He is the place that I go. He is the fortress that I retreat into. He is the place where I find a sense of comfort. Verse 8, trust in Him all times, at all times, O people. This is what I had done. I wait. I He waits in silence. This is what I'm calling myself to. I wait in silence to wait in silence. Now he says, all peoples, put your trust in him. It's not just about David anymore. It's about about all of us. This is about the people now he's, he's singing to and singing with and singing for the future of. It's for us. He says, listen, put your trust in him. Pour out your heart before Him. Dump yourself upon God. Give over to His guidance and protection. Don't don't hold it to yourself. Give it over. Because He is the only hope. It's amazing, I think. It's amazing, I think, that we... our, Our instinct is to try to make things better, right? Chaos starts to reign. What do we do? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to grab a hold of this. I'm going to hold on to this. I got this. I got it. I got it. Me, me, me. And David has been pounded to the ground so much that he has finally said, okay, I got nothing left. And now he finally finds a sense of trust that he can stand firmly fixed upon. It's after being completely defeated in himself that he can truly recognize what God has done for him. Now he calls all of us to it. Those of low estate, verse 9, are but a breath. Anybody remember driving in the car as a child, maybe a nice winter day, and you leaned over to the window, and I always got in trouble for doing this. Mom didn't like it because we always rode in it and went, Right? Steamed up the window. What happened about a minute later? If you didn't draw in it, it's gone. Catch your... Do this. I'm going to do an experiment. See how many of you actually try to look stupid with me. Go like this. Go. And catch it. Come on. You guys are awesome. Thank you for some of you doing that. Do you have it? Do you possess it? No, you don't. It's gone, right? It's got maybe a little moisture on your hands. That's not your breath. That's the spit that's in your mouth. Those of low estate, they're but a breath. Those of high estate, oh, maybe they're different. Low estate, obviously, if you're poor and you have no value and you're not a king, and you're, you're, you're nothing. But a person of high estate, no, they're a delusion. See, at least a breath, you go, oh, I can feel it. That's something real. A delusion is something that I've made up in my mind. You think you're important? You're not. It's fantasy. This is one of those, uh, a picture of, of two things that means everything. 
We see it a couple times in the Old Testament. We have, we have uh, uh, heaven and earth. Heaven and earth means all things created, not just the earth and the skies. And you know, Heaven and earth is all things created, earth, physical, heavens, spiritual. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Good and evil is an encapsulation of all thought. Those of high estate and low estate is all mankind. If you think that you're anything, you're not. You're a breath. You're a delusion. In the balance, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Anybody got a scale? Take a breath on your scale and tell me how much it weighs. And all of mankind weighs less. You have no strength in yourself to have victory over chaos. This is why Genesis chapter 1 is so amazing. Because what God is doing in Genesis 1 is he's pushing back chaos. He's reigning in chaos. He's winning over chaos. And we go, I need to, I need to do this myself. And God says, you can't. So therefore, he says, put no trust in extortion, no vain hopes on robbery. It seems to be an odd little list. I think this is probably a call to the particular time that he's writing this, and maybe maybe this is the effort that he tried to make at some point. Maybe he tried to extort his way out of the chaos, or maybe he tried to rob his way out of the chaos. And eventually, maybe maybe he even, he increased in riches. It says, if riches increase, set your heart not on them. He says, don't do that. Don't trust these things. It's an interesting little play on words. The word there for set no vain hopes on robbery. It's actually the comes from the root word for breath. Don't don't set your breath on these hopes and robbery. Because they don't win. The chaos of this world will always defeat you. It's a great message, isn't it? He says, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. And this is just, if you want to be frustrated, try to figure out what in the world he's saying here. But From what I gather, this is like somebody saying, if I heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. Right? It's a, just a figure of speech. Once I, God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that, that, and this is what really matters, what, what he actually has spoken. God says, God says that power belongs to God. Power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, now this is David speaking to God, to you, O Lord, belongs Hesed, steadfast love. Hesed is one of my favorite words in Hebrew. It's this idea, it's, it's really hard to translate because it's so much bigger than just love, right? Probably the easiest translation is love, but it's also something, it also takes into account mercy. And we translate it in the ESV, the ESV translates steadfast love most often because because mercy is the is the physical representation to us of God's continuous undying unconditional love to us not receiving the punishment that we rightly deserve shows us how much God truly cares for us and so David here in the final in the final verses he he calls to God he says Lord I've I've heard this in my distress, in the midst of the chaos. The only thing that I'm setting my hope on is that, is that you possess power and that you possess 
steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. This seems so out of place to me. It doesn't seem to make sense. Everything about what David has been talking about has been God, right? It's all about God. It's all about his protection. It's all about my trust in him. It's all about, it's all about how we should all trust him. And then all of a sudden he says, he says for, for you will render to a man according to his work. Is this a legalism thing? Is it, is it about if, if only I'm a better man, then God will be on my side? No, I don't think that's what he's saying. In fact, what I think he's saying is, is what God renders to us is, is in direct proportion to, to how much we place our faith upon him. How much, we, how much we relinquish control to him. God will be there for you if, if you give yourself over to him to be for Right, so it's so easy for us to try to take control. It's so easy for us to say, give me a king. And God says, okay, I'll give you exactly what you want. It's not the thing you need. But as soon as the people go, okay, okay, let me, let me relinquish control over the chaos. God handles it. In fact, God is, and he's, he's big enough to handle it. Isn't that, isn't that exactly what we want? What's really interesting about this passage, this, this song, is that I think, I think it covers one of, the most, one of the most covered topics in the Psalms, right? I said the number one commandment in Scripture, especially in the Psalms, is, is worship God, praise God, right? I think one of the topics that is covered the most is how we trust in God. Is we're called to trust in God. Trust in God. Trust in God. Put your, put your trust, your faith in Him. Recognize Him as your refuge, as your strength, as your rock, as your salvation. Give over to Him these, these things. And yet in this passage, it seems like there's, no, there's nothing else except for David just saying, do this. Or if you study the Psalms, if you ever looked at the Psalms in depth, we were, I was actually debating maybe to... To, to do Psalm 78 instead of 62 this, this week. And as, as I read through it, it's, it's, it's kind of a similar thing. It's a call to, to, in 78, it's a call to teach the stories to our youngsters, to the next generation. Okay, And so what he does in Psalm 62 is he says, he says, listen, trust God. In Psalm 78, he says, the reason why we trust God is because he's been there for us and don't ever let your kids forget it. Sometimes we think faith means that we believe something that has no evidence. That's not what faith is. Faith is a belief in something that we, do not, we cannot prove beyond a reasonable doubt. But we have reasons for believing it. God has, in fact, shown himself immensely through history, especially in the Old Testament. And all through the Psalms, I think there are uh, uh, just a handful, very few. There are very few Psalms that call us to trust in God that do not give us reasons. In Psalm 78, there are four verses out of 72 that say, teach your children. And then seven, and then, and then after that, what's 72 minus four? Uh, 68. 
hopefully. There are 68 verses of stories. This is why you trust God. David has literally countless stories that he could recount for us. But sometimes in life, the stories are missing. They're gone. Chaos reigns too supremely for us to bring to mind all the times that God has saved the people of Israel and all the times God rescued the apostles and all the times through church history God has been there and all the times in my own life where God has shown himself and sometimes we just simply need to go, I have literally nothing else and I only have God. And I can I can tell you, at least in my own study of this of the scriptures, that's where God seems to show up the most. And there's nothing else but Him. God is there in power, in might. Sometimes when life is good, it seems like God is absent because I think God is putting us to the test a little bit, seeing if we can we continue to give Him credit for all the protections that we have. But in the times when there's nothing else, God is there. God is there. So, let's wait on Him. This seems to be the most counterintuitive thing we could ever say in Scripture, or ever see in Scripture. The chaos is reigning around me. What should I do? Be quiet and wait for God to act. Be quiet and wait for God to act because we know that He will. So, what we're going to do now is we're going to have a little prayer. I'm going to begin us in prayer and then we're going to have some time to silently wait. I want to encourage you, if, if chaos is reigning in your life, to seek God. Now, that's purposefully ambiguous because sometimes seeking God means to ask for him to be a part of the situation. Sometimes seeking God means to ask God to show me how to not be part of the situation. If life is relatively easy right now, Wait on the Lord to continue to grow you and to show you. Seek God. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it's to you alone that our soul waits. There are so many things that are in our lives that that seek our attention, that seek our trust and our hopes, money, careers, people, love, passion. There are so many things that vie for our attention, that try to draw, draw us away from our, our, our full hope and, and trust being in you. Lord, I ask... And now as we wait for you in silence, that you would be present with us. For those of us who are in this room who are 
hurting, who are living in the midst of, of chaos that seems to be winning, I pray that you would give them strength. For those of us who maybe don't seem to be living in chaos right now, we just ask that you would also give us strength to know your presence more fully today so that inevitably when we see chaos coming, we would have strength to endure and that our feet would be firmly fixed upon the rock that is your saving love. Or teach us to wait. God, you are, you are everything that we need. You are everything that we want. You are the salvation that we so desperately need. Lord, help us to find retreat in you. That when all of our defenses, all of our efforts fail, that we might pull back into the fortress of your kingdom. That we would find that as you shut the doors of your fortress upon, around us, that there is nothing that has victory. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus who in the midst of a world of chaos came and suffered to be the work of salvation that all of us desperately need. Father, we thank you and we praise you. We praise you in and through your son, Jesus' precious name. Amen.